Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. Oil pricing is now down. The current month is down below the price when the invasion started. It went from 95 to 135 or something and back to 95. I don't know whether that's any commentary how the Ukraine-Russia war is going to turn out. I think it is a commentary on the ability of the oil industry to move barrels around. The Russian barrel, Russia produces around 10 million barrels a day and only three is used internally. So the seven goes out to export. There's a pipe for about a million and a half barrels that goes to China and then the rest of it comes out through the Black Sea or through the Baltic. And I think there's one pipe that goes into the middle of Europe somewhere. And it's a combination of oil and products, like 8 million barrels a day of oil and 2 million barrels a day of products. There's, there's the Russian state-owned company that owns 170 Aframaxes. But even if you're state-owned, you don't take a tanker into the Black Sea now under the serious war conditions. So uh, the oil in the, uh, in, the, in the Baltic will still be run at Rotterdam and in UK refineries under the theory that governments change their stance from no Russian oil to let's phase out Russian oil. So the oil will move elsewhere to be used in Saudi refineries, some to India, some to China. But it looks like about 3 million barrels a day, mostly that would be coming through the Black Sea, will not move and will cause 3 million barrels a day. It's a lot to lose. But at the same time, we have major Chinese cities in lockdown. So I think the expectation is that the lack of curtailment demand in China will offset some of the 3 million barrel loss production. And we'll see. I, I kind of imagine unless somehow the uh, Ukraine-Russia war is ended in a way where sanctions are lifted on Russia, I think that what we will probably have here is a move back up in oil. I don't think oil will go down the near months from 95. Three million barrels a day is too much. Also, this is the Omicron virus, which, you know, we and the U.S. and in Europe got through pretty quickly, so I would kind of anticipate the Chinese would get through it pretty quickly by, you know, May or April, late April. So I think we might see oil stabilize here and move higher. Now, there's a great deal of backwardation into the 80s, and that is really what determines value. The near-term price in the 90s was great for cash flow, but no one's going to buy a company based on that, either public or private. Uh, I think what's happened in effect is we've moved up from kind of an average expected price of 60 to an average expected price closer to 80. And uh, I think the only thing that would change that in a significant way is, is uh, well, first of all, China doesn't get through COVID this 
you know, in a, in a month and a half or two months, that would be bad. But the other thing that would be bad for the oil market, it'd be good for everyone. But if, if there was a resolution to the uh, Russian invasion that caused the sanctions to come off Russia. On natural gas, we're now getting nice weather here. <clears throat> Maybe almost as nice as in San Diego. But the temperature is getting up to 55, 60. Uh, that's bad for natural gas demand, but we've already had a pretty good winter. And I think the natural gas market looks you know, reasonably, reasonably well balanced. LNG, of course, with LNG prices in Europe, $30 with Europe uh, taking every cargo they can and, and putting it in storage so that they have enough gas to last next winter and not be so dependent on Russian those LNG prices will stay high, so LNG exports out of the U.S. will stay high. But it's only 13 Bs a day, and the the sites that are the expansion around five Bs a day, it's going to take four or five years to bring those on. So the rest of the demand for uh, natural gas in the U.S. is pretty flat. Uh, that'd be residential, commercial at around 20 or 25 on a year-round basis, and then industrial about the same and power about the same and then those you know that 13 going up to 18 or 19 in five years time for lng exports and you know all that looks good from a supply point of view we produce about 94 bees a day they that's about a four b a day increase that's half or two bees a day from permian which is 20 and about a half two bees a day from the Haines Hill, which went from like 12 to 14. The Marcellus, which is around 35, is stayed flat. Other areas are flat. If you go out to 23 or 24, gas is around 350. I think that's a reasonable expectation for average gas price over the next five years. Moving to interest rates, capital markets, the 10-year bond continues to go up. All the people who study this a living, say that it will not go up to a real rate of interest of one, one and a half percent. Plus inflation, they said it's not going to happen. That's not the way the market works. That the market gets inverted, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I don't know. That, I, I want to respect the, uh, you know, the people who have expertise, but, and do this, you know, full time to advise clients on how to handle bond markets. But, I personally, on some level, just don't believe it. I think we've had an unprecedented amount of uh, balance sheet expansion by the Fed. They had their meeting today. The quarter point increase, I mean, is way too late, too, too little, too late. You know, starting the balance sheet down. Think of it. During the fourth quarter and into the first quarter, we were still buying bonds, you know, even though inflation was 7 or 8%. I mean, just, just way slow. Now, I understand had to worry about COVID. They had to worry about the impact on the economy. I understand all the reasons to be slow, but they really are slow. They need to put the balance sheet into runoff, which would take it from about $9 trillion down to 4 or even lower, and hopefully they'll get after that. When that happens, let's say our, our expected inflation rate is not going to be 7 or 8, but it's going to be 4, uh, which would be half the current rate. Four plus one and a half would be five and a half. You do not find any economist anywhere predicting anything like that. But uh, I 
I just don't see from a logical point of view why that won't happen when you don't have the Fed providing all this financing and we have to refinance our debt you know, on a government level, but we'll see. The, um, the thing uh, <clears throat> Mike and I talked earlier, uh, you know, third selling, two-thirds investing, and I think introduced Mike's comment, Mike continues to be high on the two software companies, Salesforce and Snowflake, and my assessment there is you want to get them to where there's free cash flow after all R&D and after all, uh, after all marketing. And the Salesforce, more mature company been out there longer, is certainly closer in fact it's doing this. Snowflake is just kind of easing into that position. But the, my view of the software companies is that the way analysts look at them, where they add back half of the R&D and half of the sales expense to come up with an approximation of what the cash flow would be if they weren't trying to grow 15 or 20% a year. I am suspicious of that. I think that could easily be wishful thinking. And better to have a company, especially with, you know, NASDAQ off 15%. I mean, this is a time where you can be more strict about uh, cash flow characteristics of what you what you invest in. Salesforce is more or less there in terms of having free cash flow. Snowflake is early. Snowflake is a less mature business, but both of them are very likely to be successful. You know, Salesforce already has been a pretty good investment. What we've seen, what we saw through the pandemic was a big increase in the multiple. So that's really just a multiple expansion of the value of some of these companies. We were also seeing a lot of growth. So some of those companies were really good and really justified that multiple. Some of them did not. And you, you know, all of them got taken down over the course of the last couple months from a valuation perspective. All that is to say is that now some of these companies are a lot more interesting because if you compare the historical average multiple for cloud software companies, we're in a range of normal again, specifically for the two companies that Hunt mentioned, Salesforce and Snowflake. Salesforce has been producing free cash flow after R&D and after sales and marketing since as long as I've been tracking it, 2014 or so. The question is, at what price are you willing to pay for that cash flow? I think we're at a point where it looks far more attractive now. If you're looking for exposure in that area, that's one company to take a look at. The second company, Snowflake, is a different case where they are growing very, very fast. They did produce a very little bit of free cash flow after R&D and after marketing for the previous year. But it's scant, right? As a as a free cash yield, you're talking a fraction of one percent. But when a company is growing very quickly, that's okay because as it compounds over time, that free cash flow becomes very significant, as as it has in a way with Salesforce. I think the thing to watch in the next couple quarters is the impact of inflation on these companies, because a lot of their costs are derived from human capital it's very likely that they're going to be hit with a decent amount of wage inflation. 
and how and if they're capable of passing those costs onto their customers is a big question. Typically, software is seen as a deflationary um, activity because the whole concept with investment in B2B software is that you buy the software because it has a positive ROI, meaning you're net saving money or producing more sales or you know there's some sort of positive return for the company. Um, so increasing that price may make it more difficult. The flip side is if you're increasing the efficiency of a business and maybe making, enabling them to utilize fewer humans in the process, there may be some clear opportunities for price increases. So I, I think the whole sector is worth paying attention to. It's far more attractive than it's been since we've been talking about it on these calls. I, I get much more enthusiastic about these companies if uh, they were growing 15% a year in cash flow, not revenue, cash flow, and showing free cash flow, even if the free cash yield was only 2 or 3%. So I think, I think Mike and I will try to see if we can get confident you know that that kind of a um, you know with Salesforce will be looking back because they've been at it for longer, and with Snowflake it'll be trying to anticipate the next couple of quarters. But that'll be the parameter. And they grow 15% a year and have free cash flow, enough free cash flow, so your free cash flow yield is two or three percent. I know it sounds naive. But I don't think it's unreasonable to take the free cash yield, add it to the growth rate in free cash flow, and say that, you know, if you're 3% free cash yield and your free cash flow is growing 15%, that's going to be 18%. After all, 15% a year doubles your money in five years. And if you can buy one of these companies and stick with it through the volatility so you don't have any taxes to pay, you know, trading in and out of it, if you can double your money every five years, I mean, a double, you know, five years, you double again, that's four times. In your investing career, half of whatever net worth you have is going to be accounted for by the things that go up three, four, five times. That's just the way uh, numbers work. So those are both candidates, and we've got to focus in on them. I think we ought to switch over to Chip. There was a Financial Times article on uh, on the use of chips by the cloud companies and their server farms, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, uh, Google, Oracle. Um, and what they're saying is that not only their central processing units, but also the CPUs that, that, uh, that NVIDIA specializes in are being custom customized. The design has been customized by people at Amazon or people at Microsoft or people at Google and then ordered up from Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung or eventually Intel will get there. Well, they, they, they will be in the foundry business making other people's chips. And is that a risk for NVIDIA? And with that, back over to Mike, because Mike believes that, that NVIDIA will be able to manage that risk. But over to you, Mike. When it comes to NVIDIA's market, there's a, there's a couple pieces at play. Obviously, the big hyperscalers, and when I say big hyperscalers, I mean Amazon, uh, 
Microsoft, Google, they're going to have some incentive to vertically integrate as much as possible. They've done that, for example, in Graviton, Gravitron CPU, which is an ARM-based CPU built for server firms. They will continue to have um, incentive to do that because they have customized workloads that they can justify a very large expense toward. NVIDIA will play in that same market, but it, it's also gonna play in the area of larger data centers that can't justify spending obscene amounts of money to develop their own hardware. It's very few people can justify that. And, and a good example is Facebook, which is a very large company with incredible amounts of resources, has committed to using NVIDIA for their artificial intelligence model building and running. Um, so I think that time will tell, and I think that the market's big enough basically for both to play in. I do think there could be some headwinds this year for NVIDIA, mainly because they've been operating for the last two years with very, very low levels of inventory because there's been so much demand. So what I'll be watching in the next couple quarters is how inventory changes if some of that demand starts to catch up. And a lot of that could be driven by Ethereum 2.0. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds on, on crypto, but there certainly could be an impact. So Ethereum 2.0 would be a proof of stake model rather than a proof of work model. So instead of just running GPUs in order to mine cryptocurrency, as a lot of them are being done today, people will will be a completely different system and it'll be faster, but it has some downsides as well. They've been planning this changeover for quite a long time. Um, there's a chance it could impact NVIDIA, but I don't actually think it should be that significant. And I don't think it affects the, at least the analyst perspective of what their future growth trends are. So I think those are the two things that I'll be watching going forward for NVIDIA. The other thing that had a energy investor I know raised with me this morning. We were talking about energy, which we do every Wednesday morning, and he, he said some of the people in, that he hangs out with were looking at chips and they were looking at Intel. I mean, the argument for Intel was geopolitical. In other words, if China, having watched Russia invade Ukraine, however it comes out, might be tempted to uh, to invade Taiwan, basically, under the theory that if NATO and the U.S. didn't want to enforce a no-fly zone over the Ukraine. Maybe the U.S. would decide not to enforce the no-fly zone over the Taiwan, the distance between Taiwan and the mainland, or over Taiwan. If Taiwan's semiconductor were, in effect, um, you know, become under the sway of the Communist Chinese Party, would it be reliable, or would would we react as we have reacted to Russia by having these economic and financial sanctions and, you know, Intel building that $30 billion new facility in Ohio and then announcing yesterday that they're going to build a similar, similarly expensive facility in, in Germany, um, you know, from a geopolitical point of view, didn't it make sense? couple of points about that. One, they're going to use a high portion of their cash flow to build these things. Two, the 
the industry has a record of overbuilding and where chips have been terribly short and prices have been good, it gets to where chips are very long and prices are discounted. And Mike continues to advise that it's going to be hard for for Intel to match Taiwan Semiconductor. Secondly, you know, it's going to take a lot of cash flow. And thirdly, you know, none, none of these new fabs will come on until 25, 26, 27. But with all the building going on, because Taiwan Semiconductor is going, Samsung's building, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have too many chips. But with that, Mike will finish up the next couple of minutes, and then we will ponder all these things and see you next Wednesday. But over to you, Mike, to finish up. From the geopolitical perspective, there's a couple of important things. Like Hunt said, Taiwan ends up being in a pretty precarious situation should we have ongoing issues with China. Maybe those things resolve. I actually think there's too much um, economic reasons not to have a very violent situation there from both China's perspective and from U.S. perspective. I think that China is probably a little bit longer term thinking than maybe Russia is in the current moment. So at least I'm hopeful from that perspective, but this isn't that close. The flip side of the coin is I think that decoupling will continue and the Intel fab and some of the other semiconductor manufacturing capabilities that everyone's trying to build in the US and Europe I think they will make a small dent in the global production of semiconductors. I don't think it shifts the dominance away from Asia in general at all. So uh, I think Taiwan Semiconductor maintains its, its position as the leading fab. As Hunt said, this industry is very prone to overbuilding supply because of the extreme amounts of capital that needs to be put in to add supply and the relatively low marginal cost uh, per additional wafer produced. So it's inevitable, probably, that this happens. I should point out that it mostly happens in the memory market because memory is extremely standardized. In the logic market, it happens less so. But I think in the short term, medium term, semiconductor capital equipment is going to be really important to build out all of this capacity. I think in the longer term, we'll see what happens on the more advanced nodes for logic, because one of the things at play is, I believe starting with the five nanometer node at Taiwan Semiconductor, it was the first time that the actual cost per, um, we'll call it unit of compute, went up rather than down as we scaled to a smaller process. And that's gonna have some interesting dynamics on the industry in general. So those are the things to watch. Remember that the Intel node, their advanced node that's gonna be ahead of Taiwan Semiconductor will be, I think it's called 1.8 nanometer. Um, that's the one where they have at least two of the ASML machines ordered, maybe up to six. It's an exciting market and I guess we'll continue to wait and see where it goes. We'll be on with more next Wednesday. And remember, uh, you can email Diane questions and we'll do our best to uh, treat with them the following Wednesday. Take care, everyone. Stay well. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.